Welcome to the Wellbeing Connector. I'm your host, Roy Reed, and each month I'll bring you a conversation with somebody leading in the space of creating greater health, well-being, and performance for caregivers and physicians. My guests today are Dr. Cece Hugh. She's a research fellow with the Harvard Law School Center for Labor and the Just Economy. She's also the chief well-being economist and co-founder of Adelan Tech. She's joined by Tiffany Chan, who's the CEO and co-founder of Adeline Tech. Thank you so much for having us, Roy. You're welcome. Cece, let me start with you. Tell me a little bit about your background, your journey, uh, and what got you excited uh, for working in this health and well-being space of burnout. Yes, of course. Thank you so much. Um, Hi, everybody. And it's an honor to be here with you, Roy and Tiffany. Um, so yeah, my name is Cece. Um, my background is actually in um, climate science. And as uh, so I was a climate scientist and economist um, working on a, the global problem of climate change. So I used to help um, uh, national governments to think through how do you interpret climate models, develop risk models and interpretations of the climate risks and coming up with adaptation plans. So I developed like, you know, national tools um, to help governments to handle this um, issue. Um, during COVID, um, we, I was um, working at Harvard at the time as a postdoc uh, with my professor, um, uh, Richard Freeman, who is an economist. And we actually got a National Science Foundation funded grant looking at COVID impact on healthcare workers. Um, and basically what we um, started doing was interviewing, um, you know, hundreds of health systems across the country. So, so far, we've inter- interviewed 120 um, health systems across the country, 200 plus leaders. And then we realized um, how bad the situation was. And one of the key pieces of information that is missing is the economics piece. And we heard from multiple, many, many leaders across the country saying, hey, you know, it's really difficult to to, um, basically um, build a business case for investing in our clinician well-being because it's not clear or visible um, at the system-specific level what is the actual cost of clinician burnout and turnover. So we kind of started working on this issue and um, Tiffany at the time, which I'm sure she will talk to you a bit more about it. um, We decided to really kind of start looking into this issue and thinking about how do we research? How do we translate the research into action? Um, So that's kind of uh, my my story. Perfect. Uh, Perfect. Perfect. Let me go ahead and hand it over to Tiffany. Tiffany, uh, what brought you here? Thanks so much for having me today, Roy. I met Cece many, many years ago at Harvard. Um, as she said, I worked in climate change as well. So she worked on the science uh, side of things for climate change. I worked on the policy side of things. So we worked together at the same center. Um, and, um, you know, what we like to joke often is that um, climate change is a is a multi-decade problem. And so it really helped us build that mentality that, you know, the big issues of the day of the world, like takes a long time um, to chip away at. And often what works best is actually not at the very high level, as we learned from our experience. It's actually at the most grassroots granular level. Um, So um, in the case of burnout, then um, transferring this lesson over, it's starting at one health system at a time, one physician, one nurse at a time. So during COVID, as Cece said, um, she uh, 
got a NSF uh, grant to study the impact that COVID has on healthcare workers. On my side, I have a number of family members who are physicians and nurses and healthcare workers themselves. And watching them burn out during the pandemic made me realize this is a really urgent issue and a long lasting issue. It's been around for decades and it's going to keep persisting and get worse over the years. So what can we do about it? And so Cece and I started working together on, you know, interviewing, as she said, I'm not going to repeat what she said, but really starting to do the foundational work of researching this problem and identifying where the gap is and how we can potentially um, innovate and contribute to um, a tool that can help mitigate this issue. That's great. Let me, before we dive into the research, uh, Tiffany, you said that that this has always been a problem. And and certainly I've worked in healthcare most of my career and I've, I've heard this. Um, before we, we get into the specific research information, if you could, and either of you, remind our listeners maybe some of the big issues that we see out there right now that are affecting our, our frontline caregivers, the physicians, and others, the, the the things that are indicating that burnout's a problem, just sort of the things that we all see or, or talk about or experience in healthcare right now. Yes. Well, I mean, um, we hear so much about burnout um, in national, local newspapers and media. Even the CDC and the Veteran Affairs are coming out with um, initiatives to tackle this problem. Um, what we hear a lot is that healthcare workers are overwhelmed mm. by work. Um, and that's due to a number of structural um, issues um, that are at play at our country's health system. Um, for instance, um, you know, COVID really caused a wave of retirement and early retirement and healthcare workers leaving the industry. So, so we've always had a structural shortage um, from a labor economics point of view. But the shortage was exacerbated um, by COVID. And so what we're living now is the consequence of that shortage that keeps persisting and it's getting worse. It's kind of a a positive feedback cycle. Um, There's nothing positive about it, but that's the term to use it. It's a a positive feedback cycle that just keeps feeding on itself. Um, The more people leave, the more the people who are left behind are left with an excessive amount of work that drives people to leave, which caused more work to be left behind. Um, And so, you know, there are a lot of structural issues that we're seeing um, that's impacting um, our um, healthcare workers that really is exacerbating this burnout issue. That's great. That's exactly what I I, I was hoping to hear in terms of of that acknowledgement of the shortage that's always kind of been there looming in the background and then was just completely blown out of proportion. Uh, coming out out of COVID, Cece, that that leads us now into the research that uh, that you and your colleagues have been working through, and uh, the the report that that uh, you were kind enough to send me to read beyond burnout from measuring to forecasting outlines a number of different things, and so um, let, let's take maybe one sort of bite at a time. And, and first, tell me about the, the structure of the research. Who did you talk to? What, um, how did you set this up? What was sort of the foundation for gathering the information that you did? Absolutely. Um, so when we started this research, um, as we kind of did a lot of interviews, right, one of the key things that was surfaced um, from our interviews is that 
um, health systems leaders all know inherently that this is a costly issue, but it's very difficult to to know the system specific issues. Um, and therefore, because you don't know what the system specific cost is, it's very difficult to then get that budget for well-being. So what we did was, um, I mean, the other problem is like currently a lot of our health systems um, use surveys um, to um, have a pulse around how, you know, how well the workforce is doing. Um, and the surveys are great, but I think one of the key um, issues, I think, with surveys is that because we don't do them often, they're usually you know, done once a year, once every, you know, maybe six months, depending on your system. Um, it's very difficult to to then to know, hey, these are the, you know, the problems and these are the costs. So what we did with this kind of innovative economics methodology that we developed um, with this, this um, nationwide health system that we published at the National Bureau of Economic Research is really to think about, hey, how can we um, use data that health systems already have um, that you passively collect and you already have, you don't, don't need to rely on surveys in order to sort of capture people a sort of like data on everyone so that you can start quantifying and thinking about what is the real cost or comprehensive cost of burnout and turnover. So we basically took data that houses and already have. We focused a lot on the EHR and HR data um, and some survey data as well um, in order to put everything together. And then we developed a, um, a framework to think through what is the cost breakdowns, which would actually resonate very well with the finance people or the uh, administrative leaders, uh, mm-hmm. because they're sort of all done in a sort of business language. So we think about turnover or burnout cost in terms of two channels. One is through turnover lens, which is what is um, currently mostly discussed. And that's costly. You know, turnover um, costs can be, you know, recruitment costs. It costs a lot to interview people. It costs a lot to replace someone. Um, and it also costs a lot to actually revamp people once they have left, right? So that's kind of the turnover cost bucket. But the other really big cost component that we, I think, was really around the innovation around this uh, methodology is to think about the productivity or efficiency losses. So it's all about the people who are still working at your organization. They haven't left because they're so burnt out that they're not able to reach their peak performance. So there is a huge productivity or efficiency gap, which we quantify in terms of a dollar amount. So in this particular health system, um, the one-year cost was to uh, uh, $26 million, and then 18.5 of that was actually all about the people who are still at the organization and their burnt out. Okay. So let's take the let's take the first number apart a little bit. Let's look at your what you call cost component one um, um, that new hires take between eight and twelve months to reach their peak performance, depending on their role. And and talk me through some of the contributing factors to this. And what what brings that number? And and you said this is a specific health system. Um, what brought that number to two point eight million dollars in costs? Great question. So we basically this is essentially the onboarding cost. What we did was we basically compared, um, looked at the whole trajectory of people who ever worked at this particular organization, and then we quantified the sort of. Um, time it took them to actually reach their sort of highest average number um, of sort of uh, productivity. So there is always that few months at the beginning when they're not, uh, you know, 
doing much work because so we classify like that as a ramp up cost and there's statistical methods that we can actually use um as to quantifying when that cut cut off point was so this is all around once you have basically the new hires that you you put in so um that's how we calculated that and again this is one health system um, you, you talked to a number of the clinicians in the health system. You pulled from existing data, all the secondary research, uh, and then and then found that 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 cost for bringing people back on board um, was about two point eight million dollars uh, in their operating budget. Yes, yeah, so this is data for one specific health system, and you can use the same methodology um, to calculate um, a another health system specific. And this is actually depends on the system, and that is actually one of the other interesting things that we're finding in our research is that health systems are different. You know, your your cost of burnout and turnover is going to be different depending on your institutional setup, the context. So if you do, rec- you know, use the methodology, you can actually calculate your uh, system specific onboarding cost. So, Tiffany, if if we take a look at this number in in terms of its impact, and you're working with a number of health systems, you're just beginning to engage in this process with some folks. Um, from an anecdotal level, tell me a little bit about the feedback or the reaction that a health system has when you're looking at a number like this. Uh, in terms of that onboarding and and how are they um, what are some of the struggles that they may be having to to um, to be able to get people to the right place so that they can retain and not have to expend this cost on 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 getting new people on? Absolutely. So anecdotally, um, just being a scientist here, um, but anecdotally. With the health systems we've been working with, what we're seeing is that when we present them with the cost structure um, of that we talked about just now, um, that UNCC talked about just now about the paper we published, there is nothing very shocking here. I think everyone intuitively knows that turnover costs a lot, um, mm. that onboarding costs a lot, um, that that burnout, that lost productivity, that lost efficiency, that even that patient satisfaction impact and quality safe care impact is not surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, what is surprising is the ability to quantify it the way you would quantify revenue, the way you would quantify cost and reimbursements. Um, that is very typical um, in the business of healthcare, but is not um, is not applicable and usually not seen that way in well being. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where they find a lot of that in, um, innovation that value is. When it comes to their real time, real life struggle um, with um, retaining um, people with upstream mitigation, what they feel very frustrated with in real life is that that retrospective aspect of survey mm. uh, that by the time they got the survey results in, they realize after months, usually you deploy a survey. You wait months for to collect the results. You collect the results, then you wait months to analyze the results. And by the time the reports are distributed, it's almost time for the next survey. And so they would, these healthcare leaders would get the results and they said, oh, that's my hotspot, that department right there. But that department already seen five people left in the past four months um, while the survey was being analyzed. So that frustration um, is the kind of struggle they are feeling. 
Um, they want to be there for their physicians and nurses, but they don't have a mean to be there because they are, you know, every single health system out there is in some sense facing some kind of financial challenge, um, yeah. even the best performing ones. So with limited resources, how do you mitigate upstream and, you know, use your re- limited resources in the most efficient way um, to help with well-being? And so being able to be predictive and upstream and being able to prioritize your resources is really critical for getting that um, effectiveness in improving clinician well-being. That's great. One one last question before we jump back into the data, and that is, is there a standard multiplier that says it's it's X percent more expensive to have to go out recruit than it is to retain? Uh, or does that fluctuate from health system to health system from an economic standpoint? It fluctuates from health system to health system. It has to do with, you know, the labor economic supply and demand. Mm-hmm. Um, the supply and demand curves differ according to the role, according to the region, the geographical region you're in, um, and how much labor supply you have, how much labor demand is. Um but I think, Cece, what do you think? On average, is it fair to say that it costs a lot more to recruit than to retain? Yeah, that's a. I think that's a one of the million, multi-million dollar question. Uh, <laughs> but I, I do, I. <laughs> I think being able to look ahead of time and being able to understand how much costs you you might incur, mm-hmm. uh, and comparing that with the cost of investing in retaining, which mm-hmm. it's around interventions, right? The ROI actually does um, the evidence that we have seen does make sense, but it really depends on which what is the retention effort that you're putting in and how much. If it's like let's say a big cost EHR change and that costs millions of dollars. I think in that case, we will, I think the point that we are trying to make here is that for every retention or into sort of wellbeing program that you, you put out there, it's quite important to think through what is the ROI? What Mm is the net gain, right? It does take time to put resources into it, but what do you, I think once that's one of the other things that we are so excited about this research that we're doing is the next phase of it is developing methods that, um, get into the ROI, especially around well-being programs that are not designed in a sort of randomized trial setting. It's very, mm-hmm. very difficult. Um, but there are methods out there that you can, you know, start estimating the these sort of effect sizes and ROI, and then you can actually start making the right, you know, decisions. So let's let's move to your second cost component that is burnout affects productivity and talk a little bit about that cost and and some of the contributing factors to that as well. Absolutely. Um, So in this particular component, what we did was we basically compared um, two groups of uh, physicians and APPs. One is the burnt out, we call it um, group, and the other is non-burnt, sort of less burnt out. Um, we, We tested with multiple statistical methods and the results are similar. In that the burnt out group physicians and APPs are just less uh, sort of uh, productive in general. And mm-hmm. because we're able to know exactly how much they worked every day, and then we can basically aggregate up all the work hours and then tra- translate that hours into the productivity difference in dollar amount. So that's basically what we found was yeah, if you're burnt out, you're less um, um, efficient or uh, productive at your job. 
And that cost to the organization, as you've collected here, is is eighteen point five million. Yes, uh, in this particular hospital. So all of that leads to this pathway to the next um, the next idea of your of your components, which is that that burnout affects patient satisfaction. Uh, and this this is this is fascinating and and probably one that that I won't say maybe surprising, but opens people's eyes to this sort of compounding effect that burnout has on an organization, right? Exactly. Um, and Tiffany, I'm I'm sure that we have lots of things to say, but in terms of this specific uh, particular component, um, what I think is really interesting, like. The, the intuition is that once you, and the theory actually as well, like that's documented in the literature, is that um, if you're more burnt out, you have um, mechanisms, like basically you're less empathetic. There, It does affect your clinical performance. And that kind of comes out in terms of the way you interact with your patients, not just even patients, actually, like with even with your colleagues, you're we know that burnout is actually a contagious phenomenon. It's kind of kind of well documented in the clinical psychology literature. There are impacts that we're not currently tracking, um, and especially like quantifying. So we know that in this particular component, we looked at the differences between the patient satisfaction, like the rating um, for the burnt out and the non-burnt out groups. But I think down the road, we also will look into other sort of metrics and how how does your, for example, your team get affected once you you know particular clinicians are burnt out. And then that has impact, you know, down downstream too. Um, so we, yeah, um, it's important to look at all these sort of clinical outcomes and think through the cascading effects of burnout. And so, Tiffany, as as we look now at at this this idea of the impact um, on productivity and the impact on patient satisfaction, uh, again, as as you're you're working with the the health systems as you're talking to now people from across the enterprise. You've, you're, you've got HR engaged in this, you've got clinical, you've got operational, you got finance now uh, looking at all, all these factors. What are some of the, what are some of the outcomes that you're hoping can be addressed and, and what is the, the mechanism that your platform provides to help get to those things? That's a great question. In terms of the outcomes that are we hoping to address, it's retention, obviously, is there. How clinician well-being and how burned out they are, how not burned out they are, they are, is there as well. But you mentioned just now, Roy, that you know the plat the value of our platform is that it's used by medical group leadership as well as HR operations, um, and employee safety even across the board. Um so the value proposition for these other um, function areas who are not directly interacting with the clinician population on a daily basis or managing the clinician retention on a daily basis is that patient piece mm-hmm. that underst- the purpose of healthcare system is to deliver quality patient care, to take care of our population, um, for, for the, take care of their health. Um, failing to do that, do that or not having the right um, combination of energy and people and resources to do that directly impact um, the mission of our healthcare systems. And so that's what we're hoping that the platform would um, deliver is that 
unifying theme that can unite all these different function areas, regardless whether you HR or operations or employee safety or medical group, um, that we can all at least agree on that the mission of a healthcare system is to deliver quality patient care, but that without our healthcare workers feeling well themselves, we mm. can deliver that care. So the well-being of our healthcare workers is within the purview of every single function area. Um, and that's the mission of the platform. So we've had a couple of conversations and you've, you've talked about some of the conditions that you want to see changed in terms of how people relate, interact and engage. Um, and, and I'm a big component. I'm a big proponent of the idea that you have to have a high trust culture to make the kind of changes that we're talking about. Um, both of you, let me start with, with Tiffany and then Cece, I'd love for you to weigh in as well. What does that matter, number one? And, and how are you working with the systems to engage them into creating an environment where trust can be cultivated and then turned into a positive culture uh, that addresses the burnout issues? That's a great question. And you know, you're an expert on trust, Roy, um, but trust requires a lot of components, obviously. A very important component of trust, though, is communication and transparency mm. um, and accountability. And a lot of the trust around well-being, specific clinician, employee well-being and healthcare systems is kind of broken because there isn't that transparency and that communication about what's happening and what's being done around clinician well-being. So what happens often, we're hearing a lot from our healthcare system partners is that physicians and nurses and healthcare workers would hear that you know a survey is being deployed again um, around clinician well-being, that they're being surveyed and polled around what they think could be improved. They would complete the survey with enthusiasm because they want their voices to be heard. They want something to be done around it. Um, senior leadership would analyze the data and they would put together the plan and they would sincerely hope that they can ex deliver the plan um, and deliver on those promises. But by the time the surveys is done and they're about to action plan, um, the next survey is coming around. And so from the perspective of the employees, from the healthcare workers, they feel that there's nothing is being done, that, you know, that they have given their responses and their feedback for a year and they've heard nothing for a year and they have seen nothing. And we hope that by creating, by really distributing out the responsibility of clinician well-being so that it's not just with executive leadership. Executive leadership obviously should lead in this, but it sits with everyone. It sits with local HR, local operations, local clinical leaders. It sits with regional leaders as well across multiple function areas. When everyone has a piece of responsibility in this, there's more actions around. There's more things that are little things that are being done, little pebbles that are being removed from people's shoes. And so we hope that by facilitating that, but also by facilitating transparency in that so mm. that senior leadership see, sees what's being done in a certain region so that a small hospital can see what's being done across the entire system. With that transparency, there's that accountability that that's how you start building trust around clinician well-being. That's great. Cece, you pick it up from there and, and um, add some dimension to that as well. Yeah, I'd love to. I think in addition to some of the foundational dimensions that um, Tiffany mentioned that 
is, you know, went into our, our platform design. I think one key thing is how do we, we, we try our best to use data to create and celebrate successes and create that lesson learning environment so that you, it's no longer about, you know, like, Hey, this is a problem and you, it's your fault and that person's fault, but it's all, Hey, here are some of the things that we are doing. Here is the result. Let's share it. Let's celebrate it. And by, by having that data and results and evidence all in one place, and you're able to have that transparency, have that, but then you're really being able to celebrate it, it particularly if things are going well. So um, I think that's a very, very powerful component of what we're trying to build. I want to get a little more granular on the on the platform itself, how it works, right? So our listeners can get an idea of of what it is you're doing with and for the, the healthcare system. We've talked about all this impactful research that, that has informed the idea. And, and you've talked about conceptually how you're working with to create these things at a practical level, at an operational level. Um, what are you bringing in? Um, describe perhaps the, the, the either software or dashboards or, or tools that, that come in with your program and what the healthcare providers uh, get the opportunity to tap into and, and what is it that helps them stay on top of these issues that you help identify? Absolutely. And um, Cece, feel free to chime in. Um, but think about it as um, a life cycle management platform. In order to really manage this issue, this in critical topic of clinician well-being, just as with any population health, any health issues, we need to first identify where's the problem. So what the platform does is shows you um, if you're a local leader of a department or even if you're executive leader for your entire organization, where that problem is. So for let's say you're a department chair, you would see you know, where your upstream turnover risk is up to 12 months ahead of time, how you're doing compared to everyone else within the health system. So it's really like, what's the problem? And diving a little deeper into why, like what are the risk drivers involved for your department? Um, is it control and flexibility? Um, is it the patient volume? Is there a mismatch between, is a misdistribution of workload across your um, providers um, and physicians and APPs? Really understanding what are the drivers that are driving the risk within your specific department is very important because as we have seen in our data with our health system partners, even within the exact same organization, same culture within the organization, different departments, even within the same specialty, have very different risk driver combination. So understanding the why is very important. And then the third piece of the platform, why we say life cycles, okay, you understand where's the risk? You understand why there people are at risk within your unit. And then it's what to do about it. And so in the platform, we recommend based on your specific risk driver combination, what are the evidence-based clinical psychology backed interventions that are out there? Um, in addition, what are the interventions that are being tried out at other health systems or within your own health system, other departments within your health system? What are the other interventions that your peers are trying out? And then finally, to complete the life cycle, exactly what Cece said, to build high trust culture, we need feedback mm -hmm. um, to celebrate. And so the final piece on the platform is demonstrating to you in the past three to six months to 12 months for the interventions you've tried out, 
What are the effect sizes? What is the ROI? What kind of impact are you making? Um, to give you that feedback mechanism. And this view that we see, this lifecycle management, applies not just at the department level. It can aggregate up. It's to the region. It's to the entire system. So let's say you're a CEO or you CFO, CMO, sitting at the system level, you can see where are your hotspots within your organization, the why, what are the recommended interventions, and most of all, what's working and what's not. And, and Cece, let me ask you to, to um, address a couple of things. First, who who is the executive that has been the the entry point for Adeline to be able to go in and talk to first? I mean, where's, where, where have you found the most opportune way to do that? And then second, it, Tiffany had mentioned that, you know, it, it has to happen down at the unit level, uh, which is essential. And, and what is the, what, what's, what's the mechanism that helps the executive get that cascaded to the right person at that level to take the right action? Absolutely. I'll let Tiffany, um, walk you through the second question because she's the guru on, on operationalizing everything we do. <laughs> um, so usually we um, typically start engaging with um, the well-being office leaders okay. um, at health systems. And then um, so we'll have a conversation with them, we'll listen to their problems and um, what current some of the things that they're trying out. Um, and then they typically then bring in their HR or business partners sometimes the um, clinical sort of leaders, like so the CMO uh, or the CNO. Um, and then from then is kind of um, a whole long phase of sort of co-design or code sort of um, working together collaboratively um, to try and see if this um, it, you know fits with them. Um, Tiffany, do you want to talk a little bit about how we kind of operate at the local level? I do want to clarify the question with you, Roy. Um, on yes, yeah, so the question you, you had mentioned earlier um, that it, it it really nothing changes if it doesn't get down to the unit. So as you deal and work with the well-being officer, the the, the HR officer, and, and the other C-level people, what's what's baked into the platform to help ensure that it gets down to that unit level and that the frontline team members are getting the benefit of whatever the program's recommending needs to happen. Absolutely. Um, so it's um, access to information and knowledge. So the platform, if you were a department chair, you would be able to see uh, your version of the platform um, to get that information that's so necessary for you to choose interventions, the, the where, the why. Um, so what, what do I do about it? Um, but it's bi-directional. So we're trying to empower every you know, level and function area at the organization to participate and take ownership in the clinician well-being space. Um, at the same time, though, it's bi-directional in the sense that there will be certain things, and there would be many if we inter- if we, as we learn from interviewing our department chairs and physician leaders, that there are many things that are outside of the sphere of control of our department chairs and clinician leaders, and that is okay. But what the platform does is it surfaces it to executive leaders mm. to demonstrate that, hey, you know, there are some risk drivers um, that are within the sphere of control of our department chairs within your health system. But there are also certain things that are with, outside of their control. They don't have the budget to hire extra people, for instance. So they don't have the budget for really improving on EHR. These multi-year initiatives really has to come from the executive level. But by showing the executive leaders what can and cannot be done by the department chairs, 
It kind of also and providing that necessary data on the patterns and the trends are within the health system. It gives them the, the evidence they need um, to really enact on, you know, challenging multi-year changes that have to happen mm. uh, for uh, well-being to take leaps and bounds in the coming years. <laughs> I know it's early in the process. Uh, you've talked about some of the fundamental things that need to happen from a cultural standpoint to ensure that the program sticks, that that things are happening and that the culture begins to turn in the direction that it needs to to address some of these issues. From a programmatic standpoint, are you are there are there are there things you're identifying that the hospital system might need to do programmatically? from maybe a benefit standpoint or um, an education standpoint uh, that address issues and and are any unique ones top of mind in terms of uh, maybe what our listeners might say, oh, I I see that need, Um, you know, kind of that low hanging fruit uh, that might be out there that that starts to get people on the right path. I think what we're seeing is how transformative cultural change can be. Okay. I think there is a lot of conversation out there and there's a lot of merit to it that we need to improve EHR efficiency. We need to hire more staff. Like, and all of these are true, but though everything, all of those things take time, but having a, a change in the culture, this feeling that trust that mm-hmm. physicians from the physicians, the employees, to the physician leaders, to the local leaders, all the way to executive leaders, that the organization is really intent on making positive change. It might take years. Um, It might take a lot of effort. It may take a lot of functionaries working together. But there's this genuine trust that this change is going to happen. Um, That is more transformative in the more immediate sense than an EHR efficiency or hiring more staff can do, or even increasing people's paychecks. Um, I think there's a lot of cynicism and a lot of disillusionment happening in health systems and being able to have that new mindset um, really re-energize people. And we actually have seen that live. We've seen that live in a health system and we're not going to say whom, but anonymized health system in which, you know, we did an in-person kickoff and seeing, you know, the local leaders realizing that there's something new in the room and hearing their testimony that this is, you know, this is not something they expect. They, they, mm. They've always been so cynical and disillusioned. Um, it kind of really sparked people to go have good constructive conversations about what can be done and try to do it. Um, so that's what I would argue. What do you think, Cece? I, I tend to agree with you most of the time. Um, yeah, so kind of, I guess, kind of tagging along with that line of argument or thinking, I think the other thing that we, we're trying to do um, is to kind of use evidence to break down the problem into bite-sized, you know, chunks that it's, I, as Tiffany was saying, like we, what we hear a lot is that people are overwhelmed, that this is like traumatizing experience in itself, trying to deal with it. And you have leadership burnout, actually, um, you know. But what we really try to do is to be like, hey, this unit, you've got these three issues, which are top of mind right now, tackle one at a time. And here are the steps that you can you know, try to do and then follow up and then provide that transparent sort of results reporting almost so that your people 
know that, okay, I'm tackling issue one, one, two, three right now. I don't have capacity to do, you know, five or 10, but mm. here's what's happening. Here are the results three months on. And this is all kind of automated reporting, right, that we do in the background. So that really, I think, helps facilitate that trust building and changing that culture that is really, we, we desperately need. Well, I am so inspired by your work. Uh, everything that you've talked about is so important uh, for everyone in healthcare to take a look at. And uh, this problem, as you said, it, it has been around for a while. Uh, it, it, it took off and was exacerbated, uh, certainly through the pandemic. And uh, as as I tell people, it's 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 often the aftershocks of a major traumatic event that caused the most damage. And we're living in the aftershocks now and, and for the next few years. And and so I, my hope is that you're going to get a lot of calls. Uh, you're going to get really busy and, and your work uh, is going to transform a lot of lives. So I want to thank both of you. Uh, for taking the time to to talk with me this afternoon. And and uh, I look forward to seeing and experiencing the things that you change and transform in the future. Thank you so much for having us, Roy. Thank you so much, Roy. We're really, really grateful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of the Wellbeing Connector podcast. The Coalition for Physician Wellbeing presents conversations with professionals who support wholeness within their organizations. Our guests understand that in the pursuit of wholeness, we must encompass the physical, mental, social, and spiritual health care of each individual in order to reinvigorate their purpose and meaning. If you would like to hear more episodes, please visit www.forphysicianwellbeing.org forward slash podcast.